It's not just to one place. <laughs> I have pain here. In my famous ass. It's not that bad, is it? Well, you can hear them, and you can you can see them a little bit. I mean, you know, fortunately, you know, you, you learn to play the ball. But I'm not going to say it was a, a total distraction, but it is a little annoying, maybe. No, I shouldn't have to change for any other circumstance. I like my hair. It's just things flying in the air that you're not supposed to be seeing. It's not that bad, is it? Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 69 of The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. I'm James. Hello, James. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. It's been maybe 10, 11 days since we last released an episode, and it feels like an eternity because we'd gotten into such a rhythm. Has it been that long? It has, yeah. Oh, okay. Since we got that throwback Australian Open finals weekend. So anyway, we're back, and... This episode will be released on February 11th, which is a pretty important day for us because it uh, commemorates the 10-year anniversary of our very first date. It does. Do you remember where that was? I do. We. Uh, do you want me to go through from the start? No. <laughs> These people don't need to know all of our business. We had a little bit of a link-up at Dunkin' Donuts, mm -hmm. and then you came In back... In Ithaca, New York. Yeah, because we were both seniors at Ithaca College, and you came back to my apartment to watch the Grammys. The Grammys? Grammys. <laughs> Rihanna did not win an award that night, or did she? I don't no, know. No, that was very early, that Rihanna. Was a, that was a Dixie Chicks night, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think so. They were not ready to make nice that night. And that year, and, and that subsequent 10 years since that whole George Bush fuckery. I think Mary J. Blige performed too. That was the year of Be Without You. Her best song ever. Yes. So anyway, yeah, we had our first date at Dunkin' Donuts. And I mean, like, where better to have your first little date? Little did I know. I love Dunkin' Donuts. Little did I know that my entire life would be spent in the shadow of not being in a city with Dunkin' Donuts. Right. Because that's all I can hear about. Oh my God, my life would be so good if Toronto had a Dunkin' Donuts. I just said that this week. No, you say that once a week, but at least. My life would be measurably better. If there were a Dunkin' Donuts. I like, Canada, what are you doing? Tim Hortons is so terrible. I would like to say send us money in the form of a Kickstarter or something to sustain this podcast. But really, all he wants is Dunkin' Donuts K-Pods. K-Cups. K-Cups. <laughs> I don't drink coffee. So <laughs> that's all. You'd be happy with that. Like a lifetime supply of Dunkin' yes, Donuts K-Cups. Yeah. So 10th anniversary tomorrow or... Today, the day we're going to be releasing the episode. Uh, tennis has marched on since the Australian Open. Life goes on. Uh, the first week was a Davis Cup week, and there were some women's tournaments going on. And now it's the, the inverse of that. It's Fed Cup and yep. then some men's tournaments. Right. Last week was actually a big week for Canadian tennis, and not for the reasons you may think. It had nothing to do with Milo Sharonich. Uh, where to start? I think we should start probably with the bad news sure. because I am an optimist. So bad news first, uh, Canada lost in world group to Great Britain. Uh-huh. Neither team with their best player, Canada without Milos. Mm -hmm. And then Andy Murray sat this one out as well. Yeah. So as I'm sure you all have heard by now or seen or seen, uh, Denis Shapovalov was defaulted in the final match of that tie, he was down two sets to love against Kyle Edmund, and uh, unfortunately, he took a wild swing at a ball in frustration and knocked the umpire right in his face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dennis had just been broken. I believe it was 2-1. Kyle went up 2-1 in the third set with the break. And in response, he then takes the ball out of his pocket, I believe, and whacks it with his forehand, presumably into the crowd, but it makes a beeline on a very flat trajectory right into the umpire's eye. Yeah. I, it was really like nothing any of us has ever seen before, right into his eye. And the umpire was just kind of like, um, I'm sorry, like I have to default you. <laughs> and I'm kind of a cautionary tale as far as tweeting about tennis, mm -hmm. because I had just finished work. This was a Sunday. We got it to work pretty early on Sunday, 
just finished work. I was sitting at the bar and just catching up on scores. And I'd seen that the Dennis was down two sets to love. It was in a third set. And I was like, you know, the poor kid, he's 17. He lost his first match in straight sets as well. Looking like he's going to lose this one in straight sets. It was very much a big ask for him to even win one match. Right. Against the likes of Evans and Kyle Edmund. Set aside the fact that he beat Kyrgios in the first round of the Rogers Cup last mm. year. There were other circumstances at play there with Kyrgios not really showing up to play. Right. And so I tweet something like, you know, it was a tough ask for him to win anything this week. I'm sure he'll take, I hope he'll take nothing but positives from this experience and we'll see him go from strength to strength or right. some bullshit like that. And then it was quickly brought to my attention that not not more than a minute prior to my tweeting that he had whacked the umpire in the eye. Yeah. And so that was a very strange tweet <laughs> for me to like, be sending out whoops. in the face of what happened, right? People were like, uh, are, you, are you serious right now? Like, <laughs> what are you smoking? Mm. I mean, clearly he was really embarrassed and repentant in the moment. I mean, it was just totally shocking. He couldn't believe it happened. And I don't know. The thing is, like, this is alarming. The, any way you slice it, it's it's shocking. The visuals are terrible. The result is terrible. Right. Of course, like, of course, nobody's saying that he intended to hurt somebody with that. But we've seen time and again players, top players even, being reckless in the way that they show frustration. And over and over again, it's not being disciplined. And this time it was disciplined to the tune of no suspension and a $7,000 fine, mm. which to me is absolutely ludicrous. It is. It uh, seemed pretty lenient to me because players routinely get fines like that in Grand Slam tournaments for... Obscenities? Uh, right. For cursing. Like you, you whacked the umpire in his eye. This could have been career threatening. Yeah. And had it not been the umpire find one of your own, it could have been a little kid. Of course. I mean, this is what we've been talking about with players, you know, bouncing their racket, hitting balls against the back wall. Uh, and I'm not only talking about Novak Djokovic here, although he's done all <laughs> those things. Like, the thing is, when you endanger the people who are doing this for a living or very often volunteering to work at tennis tournaments... This is not on. This this cannot happen. And so, in my opinion, other umpires have been too lenient on this. And as a consequence, this chair umpire suffers because of it. This is the biggest issue with rule enforcement in tennis right now. The subjectivity of it all, right? right. We've seen it with time violation issues where some umpires are quick to the, quick to the draw. Others completely ignore it, and we then almost always see it show up in the nitty-gritty points of matches, where Rafa, for example, has been taking 26 seconds all match, but he takes 30 on a break point, and then you call it. We need to get to a point where there's uniformity in the way that these infractions are called, for one. For two, we need to get a stronger sense from the powers that be that they take these things seriously, and it goes beyond intent. This is probably one of the easier issues for me to speak to because I've been one of Dennis's biggest supporters. Mm -hmm. I spent so much of my time at the Rogers Cup last year watching his practices, completely ignoring live professional tennis matches that I could have been watching right. just to see him play against uh, Felix on the outer court or something. You know, like this, this dude has lots of talent. He's very exciting in ways that Milos Raonic has not been able to be for Canadian mm. tennis. This guy has oodles of potential. And so me sitting here and then having a moralizing moment or saying that this is not something that should be condoned or done, it's not about Dennis. This is about a larger issue in tennis writ large. What struck me was kind of the immediate rush to protect him. It was almost before anyone even started going after him. 
or attacking him. It was like the rush to to form this circle around him and protect him from criticism. Vashik and, was on the sidelines before probably he'd even been defaulted, tweeting that it's so unfortunate this happened to, to Dennis because he doesn't have a mean bone in his body, like right. that kind of thing. And that may very well be true, but it in this instance, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm not saying that we should would should savage this young man publicly but the punishment is clearly warranted he understands that he made a terrible mistake and he apologized to the umpire that day in person he he released an apology on twitter publicly like he clearly feels remorseful so i'm not saying that we should go after this kid but clearly there needs to be some form of discipline because this just cannot stand that's not to say that that he has evil intent. Not at all. This is where having uniformity in rules comes into play because then you don't have to worry about, well, oh my God, do I go more more leniently on Dennis because he's such a good kid? Or do I go really hard on somebody because I perceive him to be like a real piece of shit multiple offender? Right. Because it's a hard and fast thing. This happened. This is the result. And $7,000 and no suspension is not the answer to deter because at this point you're trying to deter people from doing it one of the arguments that i've seen put forward in defense of dennis is that these athletes are at the pinnacle of their sport we as lay people don't know what it's like to be in that peak professional athletic Mm. moment right and the ways in which i can sort of relate is that i'm a man and he's a man and i think that's where a lot of this comes from okay about how men in particular we see this on the wta tour but not nearly to the same extent the way in which masculinity is performed and what is it that allows or forces men in particular in this instance to then decide that in the third set of a match that you're two sets to love down where you have damn near no chance of winning where it's (laughs) like it's futile like you'd have to stage one of you'd have to stage the performance of your career, your mm-hmm. young career, to win this match. You lose serve and then you do this. To what end is my question. That is not the moment where you're like, oh my god, I've I've just lost it. Like the writing's been on the wall. You're losing this match. And so going down two one break of serve in the third set to Kyle Edmund, somebody who is vastly better than you at this point in your career, who's ranked so much higher than you someone who you stand very little chance of beating, like how does that then be justified as, oh, heat of the moment? Mm, well, no, I actually, I think there is something to that that argument that somebody suggested to you on Twitter that athletes are expected to sustain like this level of intensity throughout a match in its physical and emotional intensity, right? We expect that out of athletes... It's part of like the aesthetic of watching sports. And so I actually, I do in some ways understand that that intensity can boil over in really bad ways. It can be channeled like productively in ways that we view as positive, like screaming, come on and fist pumps and all this, but it, it can fall the other way. Do you know what I mean? I totally get that. But my point is that this moment is not what that is. I feel like to an extent, athletes just perform this in moments that they... Th- I mean, it's not a no. That's I, not I, a thinking I, moment I, mm. where you're thinking, oh, no, I should hit not. the ball into the crowd. That's not what that is. But it, it's a learned behavior. Maybe. It. Ha- I mean, if nobody in tennis, in the history of tennis, ever hit a ball into the crowd, Denis Shapovalov would never have done that. <laughs> it just wouldn't have happened. Like, well, so somebody would, had to be first. It would not have been him. <laughs> and say, for example, you're in the fifth set of a slam. It's your first chance to like maybe get to the final, like say Grigor in Australia, and you hit a horrible shot. You mess it up. Then you hit the ball into the crowd. <laughs> you know, like this is the one I'm trying to get at. It's like the there's a flippant attitude to this type of behavior and like. Oh, I'm just going to hit the ball into the crowd. Again, not that it's a decision that's made in the moment, mm. but it's a learned behavior that you then perform in the moment because you're expected to, like you said, you're expected to show that kind of emotional and physical like uh, wear and tear in the match, that you're affected by it. Okay. I mean, regardless of where it comes from, like it just needs to be tamped down. 
What's troubling to me is that someone like, I know someone's bound to bring this up, someone like Nikirios was fined more and suspended for much longer, well, was actually suspended, because uh, of tanking, basically, and just a continued bad attitude on court. But you then you have someone who is actually possibly endangering a lines person and doesn't get suspended. That is a really stark difference to me and is something that but then you get the argument okay. like well Nick has the track record he has the history Dennis doesn't Oh he he's, has he has priors. He's yeah right? he does and Dennis is a saint. Right no this is but this is language of criminality that gets applied to Nick Kyrgios because of who he is. Nick doesn't make this argument easy for us to make. That's the no. problem like we <laughs> we will accept that. Like we want to make this argument without qualification, right? But Nick Nick's his own worst enemy in a lot yeah. of ways. But then uh, it's just so difficult to it's so difficult to sift through the bullshit with how these sanctions are applied in tennis. Mm. It's also different governing bodies, isn't it? This the, was ITF, ITF versus yeah. ATP and yeah. But then the the Grand Slams are governed by ITF. Mm. So like we saw how they levied a hundred and seventy five thousand dollar ban against Serena in two thousand eight at the US Open, which was then cut in half because of good behavior mm. and no further infractions. But initially it was a massive, massive fine. Right. So it's not that it's a an ATP ITF dichotomy that's not gelling. Like we've seen these big fines before. I I would note that she didn't actually hurt the lines person, she just said she was going to. <laughs> The bottom line with this issue for us is that this is not about Dennis in the least. Yes, he was the one who whacked the shit out of the umpire's eye. And he's the one who received the meager fine, the insufficient fine. But this is a bigger issue. This has to do with selective and ineffective enforcement of rules, which can be very dangerous and detrimental to fans and apparently umpires alike. And the fact that it that a good guy was the cause of this really bad situation has no bearing on the issue. You can still express yourself. Hell, break five rackets on the court. I don't care. You're not hurting anybody except maybe now getting a fine from Yonex. <laughs> <laughs> you're hurting your own pocket. But when you're endangering other people, that's an issue. And the argument's been made that like ugh, nobody's got nobody's gonna get hurt. Like what are the chances? Well we've seen the chances now. Like that one in a million incident where you whack the umpire dead in the eye. It's happened. So anything else can happen. Mm. Continuing with the Canada-centric tennis news. What's up with Jeannie Bouchard? Well, totally non-tennis related. Uh, a fan on Super Bowl Sunday asked Jeannie when the Patriots were down 28-3, to if the Patriots win, we'll go on a date. And she quote tweets and says, sure. Because clearly... The Patriots were going to lose. In the third quarter, being down by right. <laughs> by 25 points. I'm, it was truly a Dylan Panthers comeback. Oh my in God. In the very first state game. Do you remember that? In season one? Tell me. Tell me. You are not comparing Tom Brady to Matt Saracen. Oh, tell God. Me. Absolutely That's not. what you just did. No. Uh, did Matt Saracen not lead the comeback? Um, do you think Matt Saracen would be friends with Donald Trump? I don't know. You made the comparison. No. It was a Dylan Panthers comeback. Mm -hmm. Sorry. So wasn't Bouchard surprised when the Patriots won and her Twitter friend remembered that a date had been promised. So he's like, so how about that date? <laughs> and she was, you know, a really good sport about it. She's like, all right, um, where do you live? <laughs> I want to see those receipts because apparently this is some college dude. They're similarly aged. Yeah. He, Give or take a couple of years. He's from Chicago, goes to University of Missouri. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said that she is going to make this date happen. They're going to figure out what city would be best to meet in. Maybe when she's at a tournament, she offered to fly him she out. She offered to fly For him real. out. Okay, listen. This was front page stuff on the Toronto Star this week. This is good. like this is Canada. See, this is Jeannie doing publicity very well. That's what I'm saying. That's why this is good news for Canada because this is Jeannie looking charming. Mm -hmm. It's a really it's just a positive PR move for her. It's cute. Like it's a it's a just a cute 
little personal interest story. I agree. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the only times I've found Jeannie, like, interesting or appealing, to be honest. I did enjoy her DC press conference when she was asked about the Taylor Swift, Kim Kardashian <laughs> Wait, drama what did last she say? year. You don't remember that? No. She w- it was this weird exchange where somebody was a- somebody asked her a really inappropriate question and then followed it up with the whole Taylor Swift Kim mm. thing. Mm. And she had lots of opinions. I don't quite remember what exactly it was. But it was like she went from phoning it in to a light switch <laughs> like, just oh, turned now, on. Now She's this like, is something I know about. This I can talk about. That Taylor Smith, she is a snake. <laughs> so I can't wait to see if Jeannie really goes out with this guy. Uh, the other good piece of Canadian tennis news is that Vashek Pospisil won two matches in Davis Cup. Canada's two points in that tie. He beat Edmund and Evans. And it's really, it's the first time he's strung together two wins in a long time. Uh, it was his first top 50 win in a best of five match since he reached uh, the quarterfinals at Wimbledon, which was in 2015, right? He's down in the so, 130s in yeah. the rankings right now. Like his ranking is in the toilet, but it seems like these two wins in Davis Cup have really helped him turn the corner a little bit. He flew right to San Francisco to play a challenger. He beat Riley Opelka, another American, who's like seven feet tall, and he saved all 10 of the breakpoints that he faced. And you should have seen one of those points that Vashek won at the end of that third set. Riley did everything he could possibly do under the sun to win that match. Win that point, rather. Mm. Huge serve. <laughs> Vashek just got it back into play. Forehand, backhand, forehand, backhand. And then Vashek, who is out of sight. He's not even in, right. in picture because he's so far back in the court, passes him at net. And Riley just drops his racket. It's like, <laughs> what the hell more can I do? The way that uh, that that match was filmed, when Riley was serving toward the camera, it sort of gave you an idea of what it's like to face someone like him. Mm-hmm. Because these balls are just coming at you. And so many of these huge, deep ground strokes that I thought would end the point, you see Vashek from off the screen return them in some way. I think like he really has a little bit of his mojo back. He's working with Mark Woodford, right, as his coach. And, you know, he's always been my my favored Canadian. And so I hope... Not this... just favored, favorite. Yeah, I mean... They, they don't have a, much it's not a big of a pool. pool. <laughs> but if if we're rooting for someone in Paspa Sock right now, it's not Sock. No, it's Vashik and his mm. rosy cheeks. Yeah. The other bit of good news with the Canadians is that the Fed Cup woman did really well against Paraguay. Vanessa cepeda Roig, I think her name is who I believe has been a top 100 player, was completely yeah. dusted by these debutantes for the Canadian <laughs> team. Like, one crazy score, something like 6-love, six 6-1. Six I'm like, whoa. Oh. Good for them. <laughs> the other bit of Davis Cup news is that the defending champs are out. Argentina lost to Italy, 3-2, mm-hmm. with Mr. Fabio some, Fanini. Some heroics from Fonia. Right. Without... Juan Martín del Potro, who was the hero of last year for Argentina, the hero of tennis, period, (laughs) last year. He's still not ready to start his season next week. He'll be back on tour at the Delray Beach Open. But having not yet fully prepared for the tennis season, he missed that tie and Argentina's out. Which, how can you... How can you blame him? Really? Really? Like, he has his own career to look after. At this point, like, he's given you his all for Davis Cup. I I feel like... Though, if you're a top player and you give your country a title, then you have done enough. You should be able like, to retire from Davis Andy Cup. Andy Murray got Great Britain a Davis Cup title. They both Does he really have to play again? Back-to-back like, years. Andy Murray mm-hmm. and then Juan Martín del Potro, they both carried those entire teams on their backs. And the year before that, Federer and Wawrinka got Switzerland mm-hmm. the, the Davis Cup title. Like The thing is, this format is falling further and further out of relevance. And the more you have these top players doing the business and winning, the less incentive they have to play and the further the tournament is going to suffer. Right. The best players in the world, the Hall of Famers, they don't want to retire without a Davis Cup title. But beyond that, the top players don't really see it as a priority. They're trying to preserve their own longevity and uh, basically win titles that come with money and points. 
We could sit here and tell you who the quarterfinalists are, the last eight teams in Davis Cup, but both you and I would forget by the end of the episode. So, <laughs> Honestly, when you said the defending champs are out, I'm like, hmm, <laughs> Croatia, so just, Serbia, who is it? One of two options, either go to daviscup.com or go to sportscribes.ca slash thisweekintennis and you'll find it all. <laughs> <laughs> With Davis Cup out of the way, the other things that happened last week post-Australian Open were the two WTA tournaments, one in St. Petersburg and then one in Taipei City. And the two titlists were... Christina Mladenovic from France won her very first title in St. Petersburg. She beat, uh, well, she beat a very tired Venus Williams in the first round. It wasn't a very tight match, I don't think. Christina was up 5-love in the first set. Before, okay. winning the, before winning that first at 6-3 and then won the second set 6-1. So by no means was it close. Right. The the, res, the takeaway from her for the entire term was that she played out of her mind and to her full potential. She went on to beat Vinci. Uh, I won't even attempt to pronounce this name. Vikliantseva. Is that how you say it? I'm guessing. Okay. <laughs> Vikliantseva. Oh, that, one that of those two. Good. One yeah. of those two. If we have any Russian listeners, please help us out. <laughs> I know we do because I look at our stats. <laughs> Not often, but <laughs> and she beat Putin Seva in the final, which was a hell of a match. Mladenovic saved match points before going on to win. I look at this result and I'm reminded of my decision at the end of last year, the start of this season on the body serve, where we we made our predictions for who would be breakthrough players. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be between Caroline Garcia and Christina Mladenovic for me. Oh, one of the two. And I went with team. I went with Garcia. And to this point, I have not been... <laughs> look, Grigor is making me look all kinds of good. But yeah. Kargar hasn't done the, done the job so far. She is immensely talented. And I think that you should still hold out hope that she will put it together. And she's still very young. She's only 22. I know. It's just that... Andy Murray crowned her that many years ago when she was so young, remember? Yeah. Saying this is going to be a future number one. It just, it's really like a blessing and a curse. Back when he used to use Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, But you will remember who my pick for breakout player on the WTA was. Yeah, I think this is what's going to happen. I think you're going to do the WTA business and I'm going to do the ATP business. So, uh... Alina Svitolina was my pick to break out, and she has won her fifth career title. She's young, but she has five titles already. She won in Taipei, and she beat no slouch Peng Shui in the final. A resurgent Peng Shui. Mm-hmm. Did you notice, uh, although Venus lost early in St. Petersburg, she was just happy to be there. The same thing happened in Auckland. Like, clearly she she likes those places. She loves New Zealand. She loves Russia. She did all this sightseeing, wearing very beautiful furs. I think she's happy to travel, period, because we saw it in, in Kaohsiung. We've seen it in Zhuhai, everywhere she's traveled in Asia. This is just who she is. Yeah. <laughs> she is a, she's just a curious person. She's always been that way. She likes learning new things. A couple days ago... We had the whole Shapovalov thing listed as our see what ha- happened was, and we failed to mention it. So maybe we can say our see what ha- happened was. Two days ago, Maria Sharapova is announced to have gotten a wild card into Madrid. Oh, that's not worth the see what had happened was. I'm not giving that a hashtag. I'm trying to bait you mm. into being really nasty right now. That's, that's what I'm doing. Um, that's totally uninteresting to me. You're not ready to pay her any mind. No. I- <laughs> So what? She has a wild card into a tournament that I don't care about. Mm, the spiked dildo trophy tournament? The fake clay, high elevation, ugly ass magic box stadium. No, I'm not not interested. You're not bothered. Nor am I bothered. Okay. Moving on. Grigor Dimitrov is 12-1 and one on the season as of this podcast being recorded because he's currently in the semifinals of... Sofia, which is his home tournament in Bulgaria. And with two more matches, if he's to win the tournament, he'll then have won two titles, 
made the semifinals of the Australian Open and be 14-1 and on the season. In the semis, he stands a good chance of beating Basilashvili. And then in the final, he'll get either David Goffa or Roberta Bautista Agut. Yeah, that's uh, that's not a bad start to the year. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> that's all you got? Well... <laughs> He almost went out in the for in his first match to Jersey Generals, who has been trying his best to make a comeback. He started the year with a two sets to love lead over Marin Cilic at the Australian Open in the first yes, round yes. before losing in five sets. And then he wins his first match in Sofia before then losing 7-5 in the third to Dimitrov. So signs are pointing in the right direction for Jersey, who is now all the way down to 267 in the world. Mm -hmm. This somebody who was ranked as high as number 14. And touted as a future Wimbledon champion. And he's a Wimbledon semifinalist, isn't he? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's a Wimbledon semifinalist. That year when Andy Murray beat him to go on to win the title, was that? That's when it happened, right? Mm -hmm. Moving on. Now, Gareth Monfils was snubbed from the Davis Cup team by Captain Yannick Noah, and uh, he decided to go play this other sport instead. Uh, (laughs) Another racket sport. Yeah. This is totally something that Monfils would do. So he goes to play this sport called paddle, which is like a supposedly a hybrid of kind of tennis and squash. It's indoors. You kind of, you play off the walls. You have a partner. So he entered this tournament in Lyon while his countrymen were playing Davis Cup, and he reached the semifinals. <laughs> so apparently, you know, I had been hearing, oh, there's some history between Noah and Monfils, and I couldn't quite remember what it was. And now I remember that in September, it was the Davis Cup semifinals, both Songa when you say no, you remember, does that mean you went back and did some reading? I refreshed my memory. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's no shame in that, being prepared, is there? I remember because I read about it. Oh, okay. Just just wondering. So in September, both Songa and Monfils pulled out of the Davis Cup semifinal against Croatia. And Noah and the French Federation were very pissed off. They said... I mean, they commented publicly that they thought the injuries were bogus, basically. It's it's always drama in the French Federation. So Noah was openly questioning Monfils's injury and then saying, you know what, we lost because we didn't have our top players. Fine. So when he was asked, why did you keep Monfils off the team this time when he's the French number one, he's what, number six in the world? Or seven, or somewhere the highest around there. he's ever been. And he said he wanted to preserve the state of mind of the group. Can I give that a go in French? Yeah. L'état d'esprit de groupe? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the spirit of the group, he wanted to preserve it. A base, and then the uh, the president of the French Federation said he would rather play someone who basically had less likelihood of winning but was really proud to play for his country. That's some bullshit. It is such bullshit. Such bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Because don't they want to win? It's grandstanding to the umpteenth degree. Well, because they knew they were going to be grilled about this, because Mofiz is the French number one. Why wasn't he asked to play? And it's really like, it's just punishment, basically. Who's being punished? Well, they're being... (laughs) Do do these people really think Mofiz cares Mm. i mean sure maybe he cares about not being able to represent france but does he mind having that extra week and a half (laughs) to refresh his body like dude is not young anymore i saw some footage from that paddle tournament i'm not sure he was really refreshing his body (laughs) i mean that stuff is all fun and games though (laughs) yeah i guess he's i mean he's just an immense athlete so he makes basically anything look good it just seems that so many of these former players who are involved in tennis currently in one way, shape, or form, are doing the most to have themselves stay relevant. You know, like, if you're a Davis Cup captain, and I'm hearing about your name, your name, your name, you're not doing things right. Because if I'm hearing about you, it means that your team's winning, you've won the tournament, and I'm hearing about the players, mm. not you. If you're, you're then making this about yourself and preserving your own position, really. Right. I want to go back to a time 
to quote I want to go back to a time to go to quote Miss Gladys Knight <laughs> I want to go back to a time when the extent of me thinking about Yannick Noel was that great YouTube documentary well I guess it wasn't made for YouTube but it's now available on YouTube mm-hmm. about the French Open in like yes. 1983 and then also knowing that he's a French Open champion you know like yeah. none of this bullshit and a French pop star <laughs> let's go back to that and father time. of Joachim Noah right who is a defender of Derek Rose? Who thinks he's just a great pal? Cool, <laughs> cool. You just uh, just a reminder: you can never really get too fond of famous men, <laughs> no matter how safe you think it is. <laughs> we have a little bit of exciting news. Uh, if you are a diehard follower of either of us on Twitter, you may have noticed that we launched an Instagram account. We did called the Body Surf. Conveniently, uh, the same as our Twitter. Now, these are pretty much all of Jonathan's photos, so I don't want to take credit. I posted, I think, one photo that I took (laughs) by myself. These excellent photos are all original. They all belong to Jonathan. There are photos. (laughs) Like, I don't just... No, but... These are photos that we've both taken over the years. At... Basically all on-site at tennis tournaments. So there's some from Montreal, there's some from Toronto and Cincinnati. So far, mm-hmm. we may be going to different tournaments soon. Possibly but... one more this year added to the schedule. Not ready to talk about it right. just yet. Because it's far from definite. But we're hoping to get outside of the uh, Northeast Midwest bubble and expand our, our tennis scape. So... If you like tennis photos, check out the Instagram. Jonathan has done a great job promoting it because I have started a new job this week and I just really don't have time. I have to go to bed early. I have to get up early to take the subway and the bus and then a streetcar. Which is probably why I was able to get this thing off the ground because it it required going through thousands of pictures. And I had all this time because Mm -hmm. you had gone to bed so damn early. I'd like three or four hours by right. myself for four or five nights in a row just being able to do this stuff imagine what happens when you don't have me as a distraction how right. productive one can maybe be. i need to get a third job maybe you <laughs> should just like start a phd dissertation maybe while i should sleeping. get a job that i work between 11 and 3 a.m <laughs> yeah you know that's the oldest job <laughs> oh, i mean look people can hoe it up any day any day of the week, any time of the day. This is 2017. People got the internet. People can do all kinds of sex things at all this times of the day. This is 2017. This is America. <laughs> Although it's not. But that, this is Justin Trudeau's that, Canada. Do you remember okay? that? That's from Clueless, actually. Mm. Shit, you guys got coke here? Yeah, this is America. <laughs> Justin Trudeau, who's going to meet with... A dare if you're uh, tomorrow or something uh, soon. Yeah. Just a quick note to go back to the Davis Cup thing with uh, Mofis and the, F- the French Federation. This is not the first time we've seen this. At the end of last year in September as well, it was announced that Dustin Brown, Tomas Kamka and Misha Zverev were all banned from Davis Cup for Germany in 2017 because they didn't make themselves available for this relegation tie that was fairly meaningless. Right. And then the, that same week, Dustin Brown plays a challenger. And the German Federation is just like, uh, hello, like, you can't play for us, but then you're going to be playing this challenger. And Dustin Brown, I remember that tweet distinctly. is like, damn, I wish I spoke German right now. But it's been <laughs> since translated. And he was saying, well, look, I'm playing this challenger, not at 100%. And I take that risk upon myself. I'm representing myself, but I'm not willing to take that risk representing Germany and have Germany lose. Mm. And he also went on to say, well, look, like I am Dustin Brown because of myself, not because of any support from y'all people. <laughs> so like, don't be coming for me now when I'm not trying to play some relegation tie when I'm not 100%. Mm. Like, simmer down now. Right. And to punish players at that level, yeah. Zverev, Kamka... Zverev back then. Zverev the Elder as well. Mm -hmm. These players may not even be breaking even financially for the year. So it's just like, it's too much for me to publicly shame them for not agreeing to play for their country when they're out here trying to get measly ranking points and some money. 
to finance their careers. People aren't making a people didn't make as big a deal about this shit for the Olympics. And y'all right. are making it seem like the Davis Cup is the holy grail. Like, come on. We've got two last bits to this episode. We're going to talk about a petition that's been started to elect Richard and Oracine to the International Tennis Hall of Fame. And then we're going to end the episode by James taking a quiz. A quiz on his beloved, Miss Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. He's going to be taking a quiz on the career of Serena Williams. 12 questions, and we will judge him harshly and accordingly. I have not studied, nor do I have any knowledge... I thought you were going to say, nor do I need to study. Oh, (laughs) no, I'm not going to get cocky, nor do I have any knowledge of what is on the test. So you can, you can bank on the integrity of this test. If you've got nothing else, honey, it's integrity. True that. (laughs) But let's first talk about this petition that's been uh, started and circulated by our fellow member of Tennis Twitter, Mike Sun, who's been a, a big supporter of the podcast. Uh, it's uh, arguing for the induction of Richard Williams and Orsine Price into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. And uh, it kind of caught our attention because we clearly believe that they're deserving. And also, it, it compelled us to look into what other coaches have been inducted in the mm. contributor category. Because this, there is this category in the Hall of Fame that is reserved for people who are not players. So that can be journalists, uh, former leaders, CEOs, uh, administrators in professional tennis, uh, people who broke down barriers in some way, coaches. Uh, But there are are actually very few coaches in the Tennis Hall of Fame. Nick Boletari is the most famous example. Mm -hmm. And I remember a few years ago, his induction was actually kind of controversial because he is not the most, uh, let's say... The celebration of Nick Balateri is not a consensus in the tennis world. There are a lot of traditionalists who consider his style of teaching to be oppressive. Oppressive and also, you know, not real tennis. But at the time, the argument was that his contribution and the the outcomes are just too great to deny. There's this is 10 number one ranked players. Like that. You just you can't argue against that. Andre Agassi, Monica Seles, Tommy Haas, Sharapova, Yelena Yankovic. Just he revolutionized the way the tennis is played in this professional era. And so the same obviously can be said for Richard and Orsine. Let me just say too that had Democratic supporters pushed and worked as hard as Mike Sun and his colleagues have for this petition on Twitter then Hillary Clinton would have been the new president in 2017. Let me tell you, like, Mike's son is out there tweeting at Oprah, tweeting at every important person under the sun Mm. to have them pay attention to this petition, one that we we find quite worthwhile. And so I I hope that there will be a day when Richard and Orsine have a spot in the Hall of Fame. I don't know that it'll be now. I think a lot of people will say, well, we have to wait until Venus and Serena retire. But listen, like Nick Boletari was inducted when a lot of his players were still active. I don't know how we have no way of gauging what's the correct timing for this stuff. It's so Mm -hmm. far outside of my expertise. But I do 100% believe that these two should be in the Hall of Fame. And if you're going to make the argument that there's no precedent for it, like they, well, you you spoke about Boletari for one. Mm Mm-hmm. You, people may say the paucity of tennis coaches, but we don't need a precedent for these two to be elected. Like what they've done has been so unique in its in and of itself that if there were ever an exemption to be made or an exception to the rule, this would be them because that's been the Williams story. Right. The Williams story has been the exception to every rule that we've come to know about tennis. And that is why they should be elected. Because they have orchestrated the careers of Serena and Venus Williams, a singular story in sport history. And beyond that, they have changed quite literally the culture of tennis. They're transformative figures in that way, in the same way that their daughters are. They've just, they've changed everything. And I still don't think a lot of people get that they were their coaches. 
Right. They think of them as just their parents, and that and that they were just on, was there too. Yeah, it wasn't they just were just, you know, They were just driving them to the court, and there was somebody else there. You know that mm. that maybe don't take them seriously when they themselves say we were the coaches. They're like, yeah, okay, right. It's like when Beyonce says she wrote a song. Oh my! God. You know, like you're not. Are you trying to lose like seventy five percent of our listeners? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, you 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 take it with a grain of salt, but that's not what this is. Right. These these were their coaches. Yes, they had help along the way, but they're self-made people and self-made tennis stars from within that family. Mm -hmm. And that deserves recognition. The fact that some people may not like that or are still not willing to necessarily accept that story as part of the American tennis fabric. That's just too bad, which is where the timing comes in. I don't know. Mm. If it's going to happen now, we've heard from Mike's son that the petition has been received by the ITHOF. Okay. And that Richard and Orsine have been placed on the nominations list really? for next year. They have. Really? But then they then get voted on by all these different people. I, that's beyond my expertise. We will try and link to the uh, petition in the uh, podcast description so you can check it out for yourself. Uh, but it's definitely a story to follow. Now, here's a question. If they were inducted, would they both be in the same place at the same time? <laughs> when was the last time we saw that? And are they being, that's the thing, are they being nominated as a duo? Mm. Will they be voted on as Richard and Orsine or separately? And then does one get oh. elected and not the other? Like, this is all new territory. We don't know. <laughs> but the point is that people are clamoring and deservedly so for recognizing these two for what they've contributed to tennis, which is what the Hall of Fame is. Right. Because we know that there are people with one Grand Slam who have half a slam who are elected to the Hall of Fame. Half a slam? What's that? (laughs) Point is, they haven't done a whole lot of winning. Like, if, from my mind, if Morat Safin can be in the Hall of Fame, Richard and Orsine can be in the Hall of Fame. Agreed. Can we kick Safin out now, do you think? (laughs) Are you ready for your quiz? Mm -hmm. It's going to be 12 questions. Very factual. Very fact-driven. Very factual. So there's not an essay portion? There's not any, like, personal life kind of situation. This is mostly statistics. Okay. Brett Ratner. That's the answer to the first question. Okay. Question number one. What year did Serena first become number one? 2002. Correct. Can you tell me the month and the day? The month, um, <laughs> that was a, think, that was a joke wait, question. That's not one of them. I think it was July, though. You bitch, July eighth, two thousand two. How do you know this? Because it was after she won Wimbledon, the second uh, second rung on the mm. Serena Slam. True or false? She's reached the final of all four slams in mixed doubles. Mm, false. True. Really? Yeah. Oh shit. This is not a question, but can you tell me who she won those two mixed doubles with? Max Mirny. Yep. Question number three. Whose academy did she attend in West Palm Beach, Florida? Rick Macy. Yep. Serena won her first professional singles title in 1999 at the Paris Open. Whom did she beat in the final? Um, <laughs> wait, when? 1999. Arancha Sanchez-Vicario? Moresmo. Oh. You're running at 50% here, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> which tournament has serena won most and how many times miami and how many times has she won it eight yes because she's won wimbledon seven as well and as the australian the open yeah how many wta singles titles has serena won? Oh my god <laughs> aren't you like keeping a track like one of those stick figure, like cross no. up. You, you write one, two, three, four, and then the stroke means five. Oh, don't you have one of those matchstick counts going in your bedroom? I don't know. Um, 66? 72. <laughs> Serena's won the year in championships five times. She's also lost two finals. Mm. Who did she lose to? Is it two different people? Yes. Okay. Venus? Nope. Oh, fuck. Fuck, Sharapova. Yeah, that one's pretty obvious. Yeah, Sharapova and Kleisters? Yes. I'll give you credit for okay. that. Okay, yeah. Kleisters actually won that a bunch, didn't she? Mm, I, I didn't mm. study for that. <laughs> <laughs> 
So outside of the majors and the year-end championships, which tournament has Serena won the most? And I can tell you it's four times. Cincinnati? No, it's the Italian Open four times. Oh. After Sister Venus, who has the most wins against Serena on tour? Venus has beaten her 11 times. Sister Venus. Um, the most wins. Davenport? Nope. Davenport, I believe, only had four wins. Can at- I, like, get a fucking question right? <laughs> I don't know. Davenport had about four wins, I believe. It was Capriati. Capriati beat her seven times. And then Hingis and mm. Anna also beat her six times. Mm. <clears throat> question number 10. After Venus, Capriati, Hingis, and Enna, who has the next most wins versus Serena all time? With five. What? I'm going to need like a pen and paper for this shit. (laughs) What? After who? After the people we just talked about. Okay. Venus, 11. Capriati, 7. Hingis and Enna, 6. Who has the next most wins versus Serena all time? Five. I already just told you that Davenport was four, so it's not her. And I'll tell you, it's not somebody you might necessarily expect. Is it Virginia Rosano? <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not my answer. This Could you make this quiz like more impossible? Was it designed to embarrass me? Is it really impossible? It's designed to embarrass me. See, I thought you were on Serena's Wikipedia every day. No, people are going to think, oh, he's actually not a fan. He doesn't even know who her mid- oh fucking God. middle name. <laughs> <laughs> this is somebody who should have won a Grand Slam. Made it to... Dementia. Yes. I was going to say Dementia before you gave me that clue. Okay. So I'll give you a half point for that. No. You want I the full point? I didn't ask for a clue. Okay, fine. I'll give you the full point. Damn. Of all the players Serena has ever played who have been ranked one to three, who is the only player to have a winning record against her? Sanchez Vicario. Yep. Which is a stat I'm very proud of because <laughs> I was a Bumblebee fanatic. Mm. And the final question, it's going to be a an A, B, or C kind of situation. Serena has this many wins over top 10 players in her career. Is it A, 143, B, 158, or C, 171? 158. 171. You got 6 out of 12. That's not bad. Mm, that's not bad. It's Th- a failing grade. But this is a difficulty with creating a Serena quiz for you. You know pretty much everything. I can't ask you, who did she just get engaged to? Clearly, I don't. But I can't ask you, who did she just get engaged to? That's stupid. Who does she design? Which retailer sells her clothes? You know, Mm. who did she go on stage to dance with in March of last year? (laughs) These are things that that you just know. So Mm. There's going to be people who listen to this who know, like, every question. If you are one of those people, be truthful and let us know. Don't. Just don't. <laughs> oh my god, you're really turned up about yes. this. You're really mad. Yeah, I'm really mad. I don't think it was unfair to you. Mm. Was I? If it was fair, I would have done much better. Oh, I see. Maybe you were just a little bit foggy this week because you had a lot going on. Oh, since because I've been up for uh, the past 20 hours. Oh my god. <laughs> so while James takes a little bit of time to recover and desalt his wounds from this quiz. Mm. Let us know what you thought about the episode. On Twitter, we are the body serve at the body serve. We are now on Instagram at the body serve. My name is Jonathan. I am Sports Scribe CA. I'm James at Elliot JMR. As always, give us an iTunes review. We see them from all over the world, no matter which country you're in. And uh, till next time. Mm-hmm.